Um, last thing, be praying for me. I've been asking for this every week and I like it. Um, I kind of feel like uh, these sermons are collaborative, um, that we're doing this together. And Brent kind of stole my thunder a little bit. I was actually going to say, if you come here hoping to hear a word from me, you're going to leave lacking because you all are way too big a mess for me to do anything with. No. Okay. Um, because I don't have much to give. But if you're sitting out there praying, God, give me a word out of this scripture. Give me a word out of this sermon. That's when the, the magic happens. So, um, so don't come here to hear me because I have nothing. I have nothing to give or offer. But God does and he can use um, anything. So uh, but that means you've got to be praying and you've got to be seeking and you've got to be digging. You've got to um, come as fertile soil ready to receive seed. So hopefully your prayer is that um, God will speak to you and that I won't screw it up. So be praying that. Okay. I have my, my thing keeps flipping on me here. I've got to turn it off so it'll stop flipping. We're in the discourse uh, study. I do think I'm going to at least finish this discourse. I'm really hoping, I'm dying to get into Psalms. I think I told you guys last week our next study is going to be from Psalms, and I'm so excited to get into it that I'm really having trouble staying focused on this study, um, even though I'm enjoying it and it's good. We started with the Sermon on the Mount, went to the Missional Discourse, and then we settled into the parabolic discourse three or four weeks ago. So we've been in this study for 17 weeks. Um, I think we've got about 12 or 13 more. And then we're into Advent, which is like the word, the time flies, which is crazy. But um, we started with the parable of the sower. And we talked about these, this fertile seed. Um, and we kind of ended with this idea of, of being blessed to be a blessing. Like that, that the goal is fruitfulness. That we, uh, that the goal at the end of the sower is to be fruitful. And fruit is how the soil feeds the world. That it's ultimately about what you have to give at the end, what you're being able to give out and to be a blessing. And our goal is not to just be good soil that receives a seed for us, but to be good soil so that we can be fruitful and bring forth something to give to the world, some way to make the world better, some way to be a blessing. And I got to thinking about that this week. You guys know the man outside the gate, beautiful, when Peter and John were walking by and they were on their way to temple and they looked down and they see this guy that begs there every single day. And for some reason this day, they look down and something's different and they see him and he's begging and, and he wants some money. And, and Peter and John said, gold and silver, I don't, I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And, and he gets up. We're actually going to talk about this a little later in the sermon, but when I was studying, I jumped out at me that this guy, if you think about what the rest of his life was like, because what happens is Peter heals him. He goes into temple with him. Everybody sees this dude and they're like, what in the world? We know this guy. This is a guy that begs. They all gather around to find out what happened. And uh, 5,000 people get saved that day. Peter preaches this amazing sermon. It's kind of the beginning of persecution too. It was made a big enough ripple that the temple leaders were upset about it. They start persecuting Peter. But if you think about this story from, from that crippled guy's perspective, the rest of his life, he was like, all I know is I got healed and 5,000 people got saved. That's all I know. Like to him, it would have looked like I was healed and, it, and that was a catalyst for for people to come to Christ. And that's, that's uh, often what this idea of being blessed to be a blessing looks like. It's like God comes into our lives, does some amazing thing, takes care of us, and then it just like turns around and goes some 60, some 30, some 100-fold blessing to other people. And so that's, for some reason, jumped at me this week that that's what that guy's story would have been. I get healed and 5,000 people get saved from it, which is a pretty cool testimony to have. 
We moved on to the wheat and the tares, and we talked about um, Jesus' kind of main point in this thing is this tension of do no harm. Like, he doesn't ignore the danger that the, that the weeds bring. He doesn't ignore that, that it, it can cause a problem and, and steal some resources. But he says, hey, don't go tearing things out because you'll hurt the wheat. You'll hurt the good stuff. Do no harm. Let them grow together. Let them be together. Um, and this creates a tension, this kind of holiness grace tension that we struggle with. We want to follow Jesus and have holiness, but at the same time, we know we're supposed to love and show grace. And, and that's a tension we just live in. Then we went to the mustard seed and the leaven last week. We talked about the weight of potential. We talked about um, what it's like to, uh, that he's not stressing the smallness of the seed, but the incredible greatness of the plant that can come from it. That what he's really stressing is how much weight there is in the potential of, of, the, of the word of God. That it, it's not just that it's small. It's not just that our faith is small. It's that it has so much potential to do so much good. And we ended talking about how faith is vulnerable. That faith is a risky thing. It's a scary thing. Because um, when we put our faith out there and decide, you know, I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe what God wants to do. I'm going to take this leap. Um, yeah, we could fall flat on our face. We could, we could completely fail. And that's spooky. Um, but uh, but, it's, but it's, uh, it's, pessimism's easy. Pessimism is, uh, is a hiding place. It's super easy to just to hide in that. Nothing good ever happens. I don't have to take any risks. I don't have to take any gambles. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a lazy place to sit. And it's, but it's, it's safe. And so we, we left with this challenge to kind of step out of that comfort place of, of doubt and pessimism and, and, and take that gamble of faith, that risk and vulnerability that comes with faith. So this week, we're going to study two more small parables that I just read. And again, these two don't have any explanation. These two are just kind of hanging there. And as I prayed on how to unpack this, um, the only thing I could really come up with was super preachy. And so for about the next, I don't know, 75, 80 minutes, I'm going to... um, Some of you caught that. Some of you didn't. Uh, Hopefully not that long. Um, uh, I'm going to be telling you what to do, how how to live your life, because that's what happens when you get preachy is... You boss people around. Um, And so that's the plan for the rest of the time. Um, I'm also going to bounce around a little bit. And so I'm not going to put every scripture that I'm going to refer to up here. But uh, so if you're a note taker, jot it down. We have notepads back here. If not, grab your device, throw some things in there because you may want to check on me and uh, make sure that I'm not um, taking things out of context. Um, Because some of these some of these points I'm going to bring out are a little bit blunt and blatant and kind of obvious in this in this parable. Um, but I think they bear out better if you look at where they play out in some other places in scripture. So generally I don't like to bounce around a ton because I find out what you wind up doing is just kind of grabbing those verses that absolutely reinforce what you want to say. And you kind of proof text, you know, your point out of a passage and that can be a little dangerous. And, and once you start, it's hard to stop. And so I usually try to stay fairly close to our passage, but today I'm going to bounce all over. So if you want to jot down references and stuff, feel free. And if you want to get out your phone and play solitaire, I'll assume you're taking notes on your phone and you can totally get away with it. Um, does anybody play solitaire anymore? I don't even know where that came from. Just, some of you do? Okay, yeah, cool. All right, right on. You Luddites. Um, so <laughs> the first thing um, I see in these parables and maybe the most obvious, oh, did I even put my reference up there? I don't think I did. Uh, now is the time. That's our sermon title. First thing I see is the uh, is the value of the kingdom. Both these parables talk about finding something very valuable, right? They talk about finding this pearl of great price and this hidden treasure. So there's obviously a, 
uh, an emphasis on value that's going on um, in both these parables. Um, but there is kind of a nuance here um, that I want to pull out that's kind of interesting. One uh, is talking about uh, a guy who's looking for pearls. So this is someone who is, is already hunting for pearls and he finds the pearl. Okay, so this is somebody who is kind of finds what he's looking for, right? Somebody who's already seeking in this area and finds what he's looking for. I, this, I tend to think of Cornelius in Acts 10, this uh, Gentile who was praying to the Jewish God and he had a good relationship with the Jews. And, and uh, I don't think he was a Jewish convert personally. Some think maybe he was. Um, but the fact that, Pe- that uh, Peter was still hesitant to go into his house and stuff tends to lead to the idea that he was probably still a practicing Gentile, a practicing Roman. But he was seeking, he was hunting, he was praying to the God of Israel. So he was already this close when an angel comes and says, call for Peter. And Peter will tell you what to believe. And Peter comes, preaches Jesus to him and the Holy Spirit falls and he, and he finds that one pearl. So he was already close. He's already in the vicinity. He's already hunting for that thing. And then he finds the real thing. And so that's kind of like this guy seeking for pearls and then finds the pearl. And the treasure is a little different. When you read the other one, it sounds like a very, very similar uh, parable. This is somebody who seems to kind of fumble onto this treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. So this is just a guy who doesn't seem to be a treasure hunter. He's just in a field and finds this treasure. And the other thing is he has no claims to the field. This is not his field. He has to go sell everything he has and buy the field to get the treasure. So this is, this is somebody who has no claim to the, to the field that's holding the treasure. So I, I, I tend to think of people who aren't seeking, people who maybe are completely outside, you know, maybe somebody who's completely unchurched, you know, that finds this treasure, that finds Jesus. I tend to think of the Apostle Paul in this one. He's actually on a mission to do the opposite of the kingdom of God, right? He's on a donkey and he's riding to Damascus. And his goal when he gets there is to imprison and maybe kill Christians. Like he's, he's doing the exact opposite of the kingdom. He's not seeking the kingdom. He's not trying to get closer to it. He's, he has no claims on it. He's completely outside. Actually, he's kind of enemy number one at this point. He's the persecutor of the church at this moment. And a light opens up from heaven, knocks him off his donkey. And, and you can tell it's almost like a hidden treasure because the second the, the voice from the light says, who, what Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul at the time, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, my Lord? Like immediately you can tell he's already submissive. Like this is it. This is the whole thing. This is what I've been looking for. This is, I've, I've fumbled on something great. And from then on, he doesn't look back. And so both of these parables are about finding the one thing. One about somebody who's looking for it and finds it. And one about somebody who's not even looking for it and finds it. And both of them are about recognizing the value of it, which is our second point, which is the revelation of the kingdom. In both these parables, not only is something valuable found, but in both of them, the the main character of the parable recognizes it sees it for what it is, immediately knows what they have found. Like the, this, you know, they immediately recognize 
this. We called this, when we did the parable of the sower, we called this understanding. We talked about how the, the first soil and the second soil, both the one that sprung up quick, um, didn't understand it, said, because they had no understanding of the word. They were not able to um, grow. And so that one just nothing. And then the one that does bear fruit, it says, and understanding the word bore fruit, some 30, 60, and, and 90. So this is about that connection. That, so both these people have that immediate connection to what they found, where they know immediately that this is everything. This is worth everything. And the cool part is, maybe, that that's exactly what it cost them. Everything. Sells all that he has. The other one went and sold all that he had. This cost them everything. Everything they had. There's two ways to look at this. One is to say, wow, this is going to cost me everything I have. And, And this is true. Jesus made statements like this. He said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow, but then looks back, is not worthy to be my disciple. It's It's all in. All in. And he says, he who loses his life finds it. And he who tries to hang on to his life winds up losing it. It's all or nothing. And this is true. But there's another way to look at it. In in both these parables, which are obviously meant to communicate the worth and the value of what was found, the worth and value of the kingdom... Both men were able to afford it. That's an interesting thing to think about. Both of them find this seemingly priceless thing, but could afford it. I had a football coach in high school, Coach Hodum, Rick Hodum. He was, a, he was everything a high school football coach should be. Um, stronger than all of us, tougher than all of us. Like No matter how big and bad we got, Coach Hodum was always bigger and badder. Um, and he used to have this saying, he always said, all I want is all you got. And he goes, he goes, that ought to encourage you. I'm never going to ask for more than you got. I'm only going to ask for what you got, but I want all of it. Like, and, and so every single time we'd be doing conditioning, we had this hill we had to run up and down. We had to put a partner on our back and run up and down this hill with a partner on our back. And he would just say it over again. All I want is all you got. And he was like, that ought to make you smile because you know you can pay it. It's supposed to be a comfort. But in these parables, it's the same story. The work that God wants to do in our life will cost us everything. God won't ever say, um, "Now nah, you can, if you want, if you want to, uh, if you want my full will in your life, you can hang on to that. I don't need that. You can, you can do what you want with that." He's going to eventually ask for everything. You'd be going along thinking you're doing great. And, and please, I'm not, I hope you don't think I'm talking about salvation because I'm certainly not talking about salvation. Jesus paid for that. that is, this has nothing to do with that. This has to do with God's work in our life, like bringing heaven to earth, like his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven. This is his call in our life. This is not how you get to heaven. There's nothing, you don't have enough to pay for that. Jesus paid for that. This is about seeing God's work done in your life. And, and to do that, you know, you'd be going along great and you'll go, okay, now I want your pride. Let's, let's work on your pride. Now I want that. And you're like, I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to. And, and then you turn over your pride and, and then we go, okay, how about safety? You kind of live with this bubble, this protection. You, you want to make sure you're safe. Let's give that up. I want you to go witness to those people. I want you to go give that person a ride. I want you to go down to that mission. And you're like, I don't like it down in that part of town. Like, 
everything you have. Some of us can, you know, we can get so attached to our children, we'll, we'll put our children above God. And you'll wind up in a situation where you're like, I so desperately want my child to serve God, but I can't make them, so God, I have to let them go. They're yours. And that will absolutely break your heart. It will feel like it's costing you everything to turn that over and say, okay, God, it's, it's in your hands. I can't, I can't make this happen anymore. And he'll go, that's all I wanted was just for you to let go. That's what he does. This is why Jesus says if, if you don't hate your father and mother and son and daughter, you're not worthy to be my disciples. He doesn't want us to hate them. It's a comparative thing. He's, he's like, I, they cannot be above me. They can't be above me. Because then you'll get it out of balance and you'll start to worship them. And they, as, as, as a God, they could never meet your needs. And so it hurts you to worship the wrong thing because you're worshiping something that could never, ever meet your needs. And so for your sake... He goes, no, I have to take that away from you. If I don't take that away from you, if you don't give me that, then, then you'll wind up trying to draw from something that has nothing to give you. So he's saying this will cost you everything. My mentor used to say, God sits in heaven listening for the word never. He used to tell me that all the time. If ever you catch yourself going, I, I would never go there. He said, God just grins and it's not a, it's not a pleasant grin. He said, God just sits there. I would, I would never give that much. And God just smiles. Okay. I would never, I would never, I can never forgive them. And, and God just listens for that word. Listens for that word never. I like beer. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and uh, I used to get really into the debates about whether or not alcohol was biblically legal, whether or not you could do it or not. I used to get really passionate about it. And I was in the middle of a debate with somebody one time and, and I said, you could never convince me that this is a sin. I would, I, will, I would never give up beer. And immediately I felt something in my heart change. And, like, and, I, and I kind of instinctively knew, but I was so stubborn. I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. And I, I kept drinking beer for a while. And I felt worse and worse every time I did. Until it was just like eating me alive. And so finally um, I, I had to stop. And I actually had to break a relationship because our relationship was about drinking beer together and, and everything had become about this. And I said, and finally I was like, okay, God, no more beer. I'm done. And it was like the second the words came out of my mouth, it was like it went away. And God was like, no, go ahead. You're good. Like, and I still went a couple of years without drinking beer because I was so afraid of getting it backwards again. I was so afraid of getting to that point where I was like, this is something I'll never give up. This is mine. And... The second, and I just, and it was, I could literally feel it like a switch. Like God said, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. So the second half of the kingdom costing us everything is encouraging. Even though it will cost you everything, every sacrifice you make is just enough. That's just enough. That's exactly what he wanted. Never will he ask for more than we have to give. Grace will look, you, uh, look at your life and it will see an attachment that you have that's unhealthy for you and it will call you to let it go while at the same time telling you that God loves you just for who you are. It's a mystery and I don't understand how it works, how grace can simultaneously comfort you 
and tell you that Jesus paid it all and tell you that, that God loves you. He could never love you more than he does right now and tell you that you're amazing. And at the same time, grace is also the thing that catches you in the pig pen and says, what are you doing here? Get up. You're better than this. This is not what you were meant for. Go home to your father. I don't know how grace can do both. The one that tells you you're enough and you're amazing and God loves you and you need to be better and you need to, to, to get up out of the pig pen. It's a mystery. I don't know how that voice does both and it's gentle both times and I don't get it. But it does. That's exactly what grace does. It says this is going to cost you everything and that's the perfect amount. That's exactly what it costs. Surprise, surprise. You can buy the whole field. You can buy the great pearl. What you have is just enough. That's what grace does. And if we're not careful with this whole valuation of the kingdom thing, um, we can mess this up when we communicate it to other people. This is where it gets tricky. Because what will happen is it all builds off the reality that you will invest in what's important to you. That's just a fact. What's important to you, you'll invest in. Jesus said wherever your uh, treasure is, that's where your heart is. That the two are connected. And so if it's something that you really care about, I'm talking air conditioning. I had to get new, we had to replace our air conditioning and we weren't really in a financial position to replace it. But by God, I was going to get in a financial position to replace it because air conditioning means something to me. I care about my air conditioning. And so I found a way to pay for it. And that's what you do. If If you care about it, you invest in it. It's just what happens. No one has to pressure you. No one has to twist your arm. No one has to make you feel guilty to do it. You love it, so you pay for it. That's how it works. And the problem is we can have a tendency to ask others to invest in something that's important to us. And that's where we can get it wrong. So here's, so we will, we will, let's say, uh, God will give us a word for our life and, and, and it'll be worth selling everything for. You know, and, and we'll just, God, whatever, I want that. I want that for my life. What you've just spoken, I want that for my life. I'll, I'll do anything. And then we'll, we'll try to get somebody else who hasn't had the same revelation to do it. So it's basically where you give up beer because you want to be closer to God. And then you talk to other people and try to give them up beer like it was the beer, like, like the beer was the magic. Not the value of God that made you want to give up the beer, but the beer itself. And so suddenly you're trying to get somebody else. So you want more of God in your life. You want, you want more connectedness. So you sacrifice some sleep. You pay that price. You get up a little earlier to pray and have a quiet time, right? And, and you're happy to pay it because you want to be, you want to start your day connected with God. And so suddenly, and it works and you see God's presence in your life because that's what you were after. And so suddenly you start preaching the value of the quiet time. And you try to pressure others to have a quiet time. Man, quiet times are amazing. If you'll just have a quiet time, you'll be closer to God and blah, blah, blah. And quiet times are what, you can't have a, a Christian life and you can't be a good Christian if you don't have a quiet time. And we, we extol the virtues of the quiet time, not realizing that had nothing to do with the quiet time. It had to do with the fact that you were so enamored with God that you were looking for a way to get closer to him. So you created this quiet time. You sacrificed this time for him. And so we shouldn't be like praying or, or trying to get so-and-so or such-and-such to stop this thing, whatever it is that we think they want to stop or whatever it is we think they should do. Our prayer should be, God, let them see the value of the kingdom. God, let them get a vision of the beauty of Jesus. 
Because if they would do that, then they'll sell whatever they need to sell. They'll do whatever they need to do. They'll sacrifice whatever they need to sacrifice. We have a tendency to think that what we had to pay is exactly what they should have to pay. That, you know, whatever price, whatever it was, here's, here's how I got closer to God. And we give them the formula rather than just pointing them to God and saying if, if, if they would catch a vision of the kingdom, if they would catch a vision of God, if they would truly see how beautiful this thing is, then they'll pay whatever they have to pay. They'll go and sell all that they have for this. This is what happened at the beginning of the book of Acts. Like we, when you, you see them, there was no command. They said that if they had land, if they had assets, they went and sold them and laid them at the apostles' feet. It's crazy. But they, uh, they, uh, and there was no rule. I mean, when, when Ananias and Sapphira got it wrong, was that the two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get them and Priscilla and Aquila mixed up. I just, just because they're the two couple names from Acts. And yeah, when Ananias and Sapphira got it messed up, uh, the first thing Peter said was, wasn't it yours? Couldn't you have done whatever you wanted with it? Like, we never made you give it. Like, you could have done whatever you wanted with that land. And I, I think that, but these people were just like, what do I have to give to advance this thing? Like, this is amazing. What do I have to do? What, what, can, I, what can I sell and give away for this? The closest I've ever come to this, uh, Esther and I were newly married. And... Uh, this was, this was not a, a happy moment for both of us. Um, we went to a, to a crusade, and they give this, um, uh, this salvation message, and then a big altar call, and thousands of people come down to the altar to get saved. I've never seen anything like it before. I'm standing there. You know me. I'm, a, I'm just a slobbering, bawling mess. Like, I'd never seen so many people respond to the gospel and I'm thinking all of heaven rejoices over one lost sheep that comes home. I can't even fathom what is happening right now. And we were dirt poor. We were like when you get a paycheck and you go to the bank and immediately turn it into cash because you don't even have a bank account because it's going to be gone before you can get it to the bank kind of poor. And so I had cashed my check. My entire check is in my wallet. You can see where this is going. I watched thousands of people go down and get saved and then they pass the, altering, the, the, or the offering bucket by my whole check just boom gone, and I immediately watched my wife stiffen up next to me, like, "What did you just do?" And I was like, and all I could think was, "I never. This is totally worth investing in." Did you see how many people got saved? I don't care what it costs me. I don't need a paycheck. And I threw the whole thing in there, and I didn't. And then I looked over, and I was like, "Oh, should we have talked about this?" <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was a long, quiet ride home, uh, but somehow. Somehow God took care of us. But it's about hitting that point where you see the beauty of the kingdom. And that's what we need. That's what people need. They don't need all the, they don't need a list of what they're going to have to sell. That's not what you give them. Because if, because if they see the beauty of the thing, of the kingdom, if they see the beauty of Jesus, they'll sell all they have and buy it. That's what we're pushing. There's one little last nuance I do want to pull out of this. And this is, might start to feel a little self-helpish. Uh, like I'm trying to uh, give one of those type of, go now, carpe diem. Carpe diem, that, did I say that right? Um, but uh, I think it bears out in Scripture. So I do want to kind of draw it out of here. And that's the immediacy of the kingdom. Both characters had to do something. There was, there was, there was activity involved. There's movement involved. 
They had to go do something. They sold and they bought. And this happens often in Scripture. Where God will open a door, He'll give the gift, He'll give the word, but we have to open it. We have to do something. We have to move. I saw this for the first time in Acts 3 this week. We talked about it before worship. This, this guy that, that got healed, and I, I saw this one little thing in that passage that I'd never seen before. It says, Peter said, I do not have silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. I've always assumed when Peter said, be healed, he was healed. I always assumed it was that word that did it. That like, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And then that's where the healing happened. But it says that he wasn't healed until he started getting up. Like something in the movement precipitated the rest of the blessing. Like it it took, because I assume if he said, rise up and walk, the dude could have gone, did I not tell you I was crippled? I forgot to give you that information. I'm, you know, if, if he didn't, it says, as he reached down and started to grab him, he was healed. Maybe, that, maybe I'm pulling too much out of that, out of that tiny little fact, but I think, I think it bears out that something in the, in the response brought about the actual healing. The word was there, the, the, the power was there, but it took something in his response to make it happen. And it happens the walls of Jericho don't fall until they've made their seventh lap. The Red Sea doesn't part until Moses puts his staff in. Like, why doesn't God go, you know, they turn around, what are we going to do? And God goes, look out, and just blow the seat. Like, instead, there's this big drama, right? Moses has to go out and, and something about that activity. And you've got to know that underneath it is Moses going, I'm about to stick my stick in water. This is retarded. Like, and if he does it, and just splash. Okay, let's try something else. That didn't go anywhere. Like, you know that that had to be a vulnerable moment when he's driving the stick, like what if nothing happens? What if I bring this stick down and it just splashes in the water? Like what if? And so you know there was some vulnerability there. To us it just looks like Moses is, you know, is the man and of course he's going to put his staff in the water is going to part. But you got to know Moses was going, I really hope this works when he put the staff down. Jericho doesn't part until Joshua's already in and wet. He walks in and the waters part as he enters. God responds to our movement. He told Abraham, go, get up and leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. Not go to this land. He said, go to a land that I'm going to show you later. God starts it and then we have to move. And I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about our salvation. God initiates that, does the work, makes it happen, completes it. That's all grace. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, and I'm not even talking about pleasing and satisfying God. God could never love us any more than he does at this very moment. There's nothing we could do tomorrow to make him love us more. There's nothing we could do to make him love us less. This is not about that. We can't make this about pleasing God. If you take that on it, you wear it like a burden, and it's heavy, and you can't bear it. And that's not what you want to carry. God loves you, and he loves you completely and fully and amazingly. This is about his kingdom come, his will be done on earth, down in heaven. This is about walking out his kingdom in this life. This is about advancing his kingdom on earth, having life and having it abundantly. 
and the and kind of the underlying implication is that there's some urgency here. Like both these guys find something precious and it doesn't say it in the passage, but you can kind of sense it. It's it's implied in the narrative. It's the tone of the narrative that, that they find something important and they have to move, like to get it. They have to run and sell all they have and buy it before it's gone kind of things. And, and for several weeks we've been talking about agricultural metaphors, agricultural parables, and how most of them are about process and growing things takes uh, time and a process. Well, this one um, is, is kind of a tension to that. This is the other side because this one's about now. It's about don't wait. It's about redeeming the time and, and moving because you found something completely precious. This is why the book of Hebrews says, uh, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled and were testing the wilderness. Today, today don't wait. Don't hesitate. When you hear my voice today, move. And this is huge. We, we talk about how uh, when Jesus called Peter, and all he said was, follow me. Like, and Peter got up and followed him, and it's a cool thing. It happened quick. But here, when I was reading that this week, something that got me that I never thought of before is if you read the whole story, Jesus, the people are pressing him, and they all want a word, and they all want to hear from him. And Jesus had kind of gotten pressed against the, the sea, and so he jumps on a boat, needed somebody that had a ride. And so he's like, hey, dude, you got a car. Let me go with you. Like he needed Peter's boat. So he gets in Peter's boat, pushes off a little bit from the shore, turns back and speaks to the people. So he's kind of using Peter for his boat at this point. And he, and he, uh, and he, and he preaches to the people. And then he turns around to Peter and says, throw your nets in. And Peter, you can, you can almost hear the sarcasm in, the, in his voice. Dude, we've been out all night long. Like... I am a fisherman. I think I know what I'm doing. We fished all night long, got nothing. But if you say so, he throws his nets in and he pulls up such a huge catch that the nets were tearing. And so he calls his brother in and they get a second boat in. And now they're suddenly worried about sinking boats because they have so many fish, which means Peter had just had that, that blessing. Like if we're talking business, he had just had that breakthrough that you were always waiting for. Like, this is enough fish to set up my business for life. Like, we can, I, can, I can finally pay off that loan on the boat. I can finally maybe buy a second boat and get, you know, a little bit of, you know, some more manpower going and maybe really start to turn this thing into, like... So Peter didn't just go, okay, I'll quit being a fisherman and become a, like a, a disciple because that actually doesn't sound like much of a trade. I'd take disciple over fisherman most days, you know, come home stinking every single day. Some of you guys love to fish. You're like, no way, fish all day. That'd be amazing. This is net fishing. This isn't fun fishing. This is hard work. But uh, yeah, I'd be a disciple any day over that, except for the fact that Peter has two boats, maybe more, full of fish. Like that, he just got that blessing that you've been praying for forever. And Jesus says, follow me. It changes the tone of that a little bit. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Peter's in there like, I have Jesus and I have more fish than I could have ever dreamed of that could probably set my family up for a good long while. And he follows Jesus. He says, no. And he doesn't even, as far as we know, he doesn't even hesitate. He's gone. Follows Jesus today when you hear my voice. Now, don't wait. 
I think about this with the, the woman with the issue of blood. Twelve years it said that she had been to every doctor, exhausted everything she owned, hadn't gotten any better. And it's, and it's kind of a tricky story because she's not even really supposed to be in the city. She was a, a woman who's bleeding back then was considered unclean. She's supposed to be outside the city unclean. And if she comes in the city, she's supposed to be yelling, unclean, unclean. And this isn't a situation where, where Jesus even comes to her. This isn't like, you know, I, I can call on Jesus. I can go to Jesus. He's on his way to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter. He had been talking. Jairus says, my daughter's sick. Jesus says, let's go. They're on the move. Jesus is passing by. If she doesn't grab him in that moment, he is gone. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, an opportunity right now. And she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she goes and she grabs him on it as he's passing by. So much, like Jesus was so unaware of her that as, as she touched him and gets healed, he's like, whoa, who touched me? I felt healing go out of me. Like, who touched me? And they're like, dude, there's people pressing up against us in every direction. How can we possibly know who touched you? And he turns around and she's sitting there. Like, if she doesn't capture that moment right at that moment, then it's over. It's gone. He's at Jairus's. He's healing Jairus's daughter. It's over. Like, that's, that's the way the kingdom works sometimes. It's now. If I don't grab now, if I don't grab Jesus now, if I don't reach out for this now, if I don't move now, it's gone. Jesus was not coming to her. He was passing by. Blind Bartimaeus, same thing. He's sitting out there. He hears Jesus is walking down the street and he starts screaming, Jesus, son of David. They're like, shut up. God. Uh, like everybody's telling him to shut up, right? And he won't do it. Shut up, dude, son of David. Jesus, son of David. Like, I'm not letting this opportunity go by. And Jesus comes and says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? He's like, that I might be healed. That I might receive my sight. And he does. Heals him. What happens if they go, shut up, dude. Okay, fine. I'll be quiet. Jesus is gone. He didn't even know Bartimaeus was there. Bartimaeus hadn't screamed in that moment. Flip side of this, one of the saddest stories in all the Bible. Starts in 2 Samuel 13. Uh, David's one of, so David's got multiple wives. That's another sermon. We'll preach that another time. And, uh, and he, um, so he's got kids and half kids that are half siblings and it's all mixed up. But one of his sons rapes one of his daughters, a half sister. And so the son's name was Amnon. Uh, and Amnon rapes uh, Tamar. And <clears throat> Tamar's full brother, uh, Absalom, hears about it and he's furious. And word gets to David and David's furious. Everybody's angry. Nobody does anything. So Absalom just stews on it and he stews on it and he stews on it. And eventually Absalom calls this dinner and he's going to invite Amnon and David. And I think he wants to have it out and he wants to deal with this. And he sends an invitation to David and David says, I can't come. I've got too much going on. David rejects the invitation. I think there was a couple invitations. David rejects all of them. So Amnon does not get his justice. He does not get dealt with. And so Amnon starts to hang out at the gates outside of Jerusalem and people would come to see David to get justice and Amnon would say ah the king's busy or he's out man but I'll take care of you like I'll I, and if you know if I was here I, I would listen to my people and he starts to win over says he starts to win over the hearts of David's people the people start to fall in love with Amnon and Amnon eventually leads uh, uh, a revolution and he and he chases David David has to run out of his own kingdom, Amnon takes the throne. Amnon has the kingdom from David. And so David and his men 
are, are on the run. There's people making fun of them, like, and it's, it's a terrible situation. And in a battle, Absalom, um, it said, <laughs> he had really long hair. And uh, to the point that he said every time he got a haircut, it cost two, it weighed two pounds. I don't know how much hair, two pounds of hair is, but, um, but his hair gets caught in a tree. And he yanks him off his horse, I guess. And uh, Joab, David's kind of right-hand man, sends some men over to stab him. And they kill Absalom as he's hanging there. And they come and tell David, and David breaks down and absolutely is crushed and balls. And Joab gets angry at him and he's like, dude, your men stuck by you as you were chased out of the kingdom and now they finally get victory and you're crying, you're going to lose them. And he has that famous line that you hate the things, the people who love you and you love the people that hate you. And for some reason I was reading that this week and I thought, how much could have changed? Here David is, has to, has to leave his kingdom, loses a son. He's obviously brokenhearted over. This, this revolution changed none of that. He's shattered over the death of one of his oldest sons. And how much of that was because he didn't act way back when the, when the, when the bad thing happened. When, when Tamar was raped, David does nothing. He chooses not to act. He chooses to be passive. He chooses to let the moment go. And, and, and here he is, a broken man, lost a son, obviously crushed over it because he missed the opportunity. He let it go by. Today, when you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. We've been focusing on the agricultural process. This would be the harvest. This would be the harvest moment, which is kind of a funny word because when we say it in church, we're like, God's going to bring a harvest. And everybody's like, yeah, bring a harvest. Unless you grow up on a farm. If you grew up on a farm, you're like, oh, God, harvest. That's like the, that's the hardest work of the year. Like harvest time was not like celebration. Like that's when harvest is over. When harvest is coming, it's like oh, long hours, like back-breaking work, you know, like, and, and, it's, and it's risky. I remember growing up, like the communal stress when you would get late autumn rains and the fields were too muddy to bring in the crop, like the whole town would be like terrified, like, like that, uh, that an entire season's worth of crop may go bad because you can't get in and harvest it. That's like the scariest thing ever. Like when you come from an agricultural town, harvest time is like now time. It's like there is only so much light in the day. There is only so much time to get this in. If it goes bad now, you missed it. It'll be ruined. It'll be like harvest is hustle time. It is now time. Businesses have these moments where they come and go. If you don't act now, if you don't, if you don't make that move now, the, the thing may not come around again. Parenting has these moments. And you have those moments where you know you know, this is my window. If I don't get this window, I tell you what, if you keep putting off parenting moves, they're gone. You blink and it's over. You've missed your window. I think relationships have this window. I mean, this is maybe more vulnerable than I'm supposed to be up here, but Esther and I just took our vacation and when we were leaving, it was utter hell. It was like all hell wanted to keep us from going on this vacation. We were being ugly to each other. I was tired, which makes me mean, and she was super tired, which makes her feel like a victim, and those two don't go together well. And we were just at each other. And, and it, was, it was bad. And, we, and finally we made it out. We weren't even talking to each other when we got in the van to leave. 
we got in the van and we started driving and I'm mad and she's mad and the kids have, you know, can sense the tension but don't really know what's going on. And, and we were driving on a Monday and I pray on Monday nights. I came to my prayer time. I cranked up the Christian music and I prayed while I was driving and the kids just thought we were playing music loud. So they didn't know I'm up there praying. And it was like as soon as I finished praying, this like huge weight came off. And I look over and Esther has a smile on her face. And, and I had a smile on my face, and, and it was like, we're on vacation. You know, forget all that mess. We're on vacation. And we went down and had a fantastic vacation, and I journaled the first day on vacation. And I wrote um, that it felt like if we had, because we, we had actually decided not to go. We were like, we're not even going to go. It's too much work. We're too tired. Blah. And I journaled that it felt like if we hadn't gone on vacation, if we hadn't left, if we hadn't pulled the trigger, like, we would, have, we would have lost things. We would have, I think we would have lost kids. I think the kids would have been so bitter. Like, and, and so I've journaled, God, is it possible that, that the world is that vulnerable? That it, that it hinges on, on moments like that? Is it possible that that much weight can bear? I should have brought my journal. I'd read it to you. Is it possible that that much weight can bear on such tiny decisions? like to go on vacation or not to go on vacation. Like when I got down there and I, and I was praying and I felt it, it felt like we had literally just dodged hell. Like literally, like if we'd have stayed, it would have been, and I may be over-dramatizing. I get a little melodramatic. I know that. But it, it felt like that. And I, and I prayed that. I was like, God, is it possible that, that little decisions can mean that much, that so much can hinge on now, on this moment, on this time? I think so. So how do we respond to this? I would hope that we would respond to this with movement. With, with movement. That if the Holy Spirit is convicting us, we would move. We would act. That we would, if, if the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you've got this relationship and, uh, and it's out of sorts, and I know it's wrong, and you need, you know, we're just like, I'm waiting for an apology. I would hope that we would that we would go, you know what? I'm not waiting. I'm going to make the call. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to send the text. I'm going to initiate. I'm going to move because it's about now. The Holy Spirit is prompting us about giving. I don't want to talk about the church, but just giving to someone, just giving it all. That we would obey. I know a lot of times we're like, I can't. Like, you don't understand if I, if I decided to give, I'd have to rework everything. And I'm like, that's exactly the point. Yeah, sometimes that's exactly the point. Like, to go, I'm going to give this, and then, and like, in other words, I'm going to sell everything and just do it, and then go, okay, so now how do I reorient my life around God, around what God wants to do in my life? If God's tugging on our hearts to spend more time with our kids, to talk with our kids more, move, do it, absolutely. Maybe He's telling us to throw ourselves more fully into worship, and today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So whatever it is, if God laid on your heart to send an encouraging text, to pray for someone, to give up something that you love, to open yourself up to someone and be vulnerable, to, to make a confession, do it. Don't wait. Today is the day. Right now. Do it. Let's be a church that follows those crazy little promptings. I didn't ask her permission to tell this, but I'm going to. I was up here praying one Monday night, and and uh, I felt like we were in a drought. 
and and God had given me this. I'd been studying Elijah, and, and Elijah had said that it wasn't going to rain for three years until he said so. He said it wasn't going to rain until he said so. Maybe in a three-year drought, nothing was happening. And God speaks to Elijah, I'm going to send my rain. And and uh, and this is in my head. Uh, and uh, and I'm up here praying, and I always play worship music when I'm praying. I pray a little bit loud so I can sing loud and nobody can hear me. Um, and I'm up here praying in this song, um, uh, there is a cloud comes on and it has this bridge that says, we receive your rain, we receive your rain, we receive your rain. And so I've already got Elijah in my head. The song's playing this thing. And, and I knew from the story that there's this scene where Elijah hears it, that it's going to rain. God tells him it's going to rain and he prays. It says he bent over and put his head between his knees. I'm not going to demonstrate that today, maybe next week. But, um, and he sent his, his servant out and he goes, what do you see? And he goes, I see nothing. Does it again and goes that same amount. What do you see? I see nothing. So he does it seven times, and the seventh time the servant comes back and he goes, I see a cloud about the size of a man's hand out over the ocean. And Elijah says, It is enough. And he tells Ahab, he sends a message to Ahab, You better saddle up your chariots and get out of here, or that rain's going to beat you back to the, back to the palace. Because they were actually in the valleys trying to find the last little bit of grass to feed the horses so they didn't have to kill them. Because they were out of every three years of drought, out of everything. And so he tells Ahab, all there is is a speck of a cloud in the horizon. He tells Ahab, you better get moving or you're not going to beat the rain. And so I'm up here and I know that story and, I am, uh, and, and I'm singing, we receive your rain, we receive your rain. And I start to pray, God, I need, to, I need a cloud. I don't care if it's the size of a man's hand. I need something. I need to know that you're like in this. That, that, that you're doing stuff. We need your rain, and I don't even see a cloud. And my phone chirps. Bing! And I always check my phone when I'm praying because people send me prayer requests all the time, blah, blah. And I pull it out, and it's a text from Brandy. It just says, I'm praying for you and for the church tonight. That's all it said. And, but I kid you not, the second the words came out of my mouth, God, I need a cloud the size of a man's hand. Bing! And I didn't put it together at that point. I opened it up. I'm praying for you and for the church tonight. And I was like, I'll take it. I will take it. Like, yes, it's tiny. Yes, it's not a lot. And, and the work it did in my faith is immeasurable. And all I can think is Brandy felt a prompt. When I told her the story, she was like, I don't know. I felt like God wanted me to send you that. I felt prompted to send it. So what if she doesn't send that? What if she's like, that's crazy. He doesn't want to give my crazy little text. Blah, blah, blah. And she ignores it and she doesn't act. Then I'm up here all night going, I don't even see a cloud. And who knows what I leave feeling. Like I left that night feeling, it wasn't much, but it was a cloud the size of a man's hand and I will take that. And it totally built my faith. So as we go to the table tonight, I want to think on this. Galatians 4 says, but in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, So at the perfect moment, at the precise now, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we're sons, God has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that we're no longer slaves but sons. And if sons, then we're heirs of God. Everything we have is because God moved now.